Welcome to the LSE Events Podcast by the London School of Economics and Political Science. Get ready to hear from some of the most influential international figures in the social sciences. Good evening. There is a camera somewhere looking at me. I've forgotten where it is. There are allegedly hundreds of people watching. I hope those people in their various ways, don't mind if I make an especial welcome to the people who are physically present. I think of it as like a football match which has been televised live on Sky, and yet you've turned up to keep our spirits up. So thank you very much. Thank you very much. However, to be glum about it, to be glum about it, the 700 people allegedly watching don't need to worry about my now saying, if there's a fire, <laughs> there are, there used to be, <laughs> exits, <laughs> which are usually not locked. And I'm going to make a go for that one, if there is one. That's the extent of the fire warning. I wasn't even briefed to provide one. There you are. <laughs> and my name is Connor Geerty. I'm a professor of human rights law at the law school. And that was the extent of my housekeeping. I'm introducing, I'm allocated five minutes, but because we started two minutes late, I have now a minute, I have now a minute, which is enough time to say that you should all have been given, those of you who are here physically, a piece of paper. And the world has now got to the point where a large and extensive report can be reduced to two signs. And there it is, there it is. Although we hope you'll read the excellent report in full. There is, on this piece of paper, something called a QR code. And you're to look at it. I'll get to you remote people in a minute. You're to look at it, and then you're to use your electronic gizmo to reveal questions. Now, I'm delighted to say the questions will have nothing to do with my competence, nor the competence of any of the participants. So don't think that you can take revenge on us by filling it in during it as you disagree with us or disapprove of our behavior. The questions are multiple choice, so quite simple, and you're supposed to engage with the paper. Isn't that right? This is what it's about. Co-production of knowledge is the new thing, is a new thing. And please do that. Online, remotees, you will receive a link to the same information in the Zoom chat. We won't be seeing any of the Zoom chat, so don't tell us horrible things. We won't see it, and we'll never go on it in case we see it. So keep your eyes on us, and don't send chat links to each other or us, and you can do the same... Uh, you can do the same sir, uh, questionnaire that way. Zoom people, at the end of this event, you will return to your flat, <laughs> bed, kitchen. We will leave to have a lavish reception. <laughs> so we'll spare a thought for the 700 people, allegedly, tucking into a slice of toast <laughs> with possibly a glass of milk. <laughs> While we indulge ourselves in and get this, 
I'm checking my notes. <laughs> vegetarian, exclusively vegetarian. I think it's canopies. Is it called canopies or canaps? Canopies. Together with, for those of you who are stifling a disgruntled sigh, together with wine. Together with wine. So that'll be our reward for being here. And what I'm now going to do is ask the authors of this estimable report, who are Joanna and Kate, you know that already, and I'm going to ask them to come over here, and I'm going to remind them that they have 10 minutes. Now, they may jostle with each other to see who gets five and who gets five like two children in a family. I don't know how they've divided it, but they have between them 10 minutes to introduce this report, uh, and then I'm going to ask, uh, introduce and ask Robert to introduce the speaker. So that's the line. We end at eight o'clock. Do not worry. Mostly people come to events and the minute they arrive, they want it to end. Don't worry. This one will end. It's my job for it not only to run successfully, but to end. <laughs> <laughs> Round of applause from everybody. Hello, good evening, everyone. I have already to apologize. We won't be as funny as and as entertaining as Connor. That's impossible. But hopefully, uh, we can still share with you some interesting insights and information and ideas from our latest Global Trends report. So we are delighted to be here to launch the fourth Global Trends and Climate Litigation report this year as a hybrid event. So thank you to all the panelists. Thank you to all the attendees here and elsewhere, and also to all the colleagues who have reviewed and provided suggestions to the report. The report provides a synthesis of global trends in climate litigation. The focus is uh, on cases that have been filed or concluded between May 2021 and May 2022. The report was published today, and it can be downloaded from the GRI's website. I will kick us off with a general picture and numbers, and then Kate will focus on some of the most important trends that we have identified. Very well. So these are the key sources for this report. The blue one is the Climate Change Laws of the World database, which we run in partnership with the Sabin Center at Columbia University. And the gray one is the Sabin Center's US climate uh, chart. We're delighted to have Professor Mike Berger uh, from the Sabin Center joining online uh, with us tonight. These databases, they track cases around the world, cases where climate change or science or climate policy are a material issue to the proceedings. We encourage you to uh, check both the report and the databases for more information on how we collect the cases and also um, with summaries and more about each one of the cases. Now to the numbers. What have we found this year? Well, globally, the cumulative number of climate-related litigation has more than doubled since 2015. There are now over 2,000 cases, and uh, we, looking at the past two years, we see that a quarter have been filed in the last two years. 
An interesting point is that in 2021, we saw the highest number of annual uh, cases outside of the US. Here in this map, you can see uh, the growth and you can see also how climate litigation has spread worldwide. So now we know that there are climate cases in 43 countries around the world. This last year, we've seen new cases in Italy, Denmark, and Papua New Guinea. While the overwhelming majority of cases have been filed in the global north, we also see an increasing number of cases in the global south. So uh, this year, we know of 88 cases that have been filed in total in the global south, 47 in Latin America and the Caribbean, 28 in the Asia Pacific, and 13 in Africa. Coverage of many jurisdictions, particularly the global south, has improved thanks to the Sabin Center's uh, new peer review network, which under the leadership of Maria Antonia Chigri has been collected, collecting new cases. It should be also noted that, uh, whereas you can't see here in the map, uh, international litigation is also raising. And we see, uh, we've identified cases in 15 international and regional courts or tribunals. Something that we did already in previous years and we did again is this analysis of outcomes, where we look at uh, outcomes of cases outside of the US. So this year, um, we, if you see here this orange bar, you can see that um, the, the number of cases of unsuccessful cases has slightly increased, but still we have 54% of all cases where the outcomes have been favorable to climate action. The reason for this uh, slight uh, decrease is that a number of cases filed in Germany have been dismissed, and, and these are cases uh, filed uh, against subnational governments following the decision in the Neubauer case. From the full spectrum of cases, we then narrow down to what we call the strategic litigation. And these are cases where the claimant's motives go beyond concerns of of the individual litigant. And they, they're really trying to break this broader societal change. We see here cases that are trying to advance climate policies, cases that are trying to raise awareness and uh, change really behavior of governmental or corporate actors. After this slide, I will hand over to Kate in five minutes each. And um, she will then guide us through some of the key findings of these cases. Before that, I just want to finish with two points. Firstly, that this year in April, the IPCC recognized the role that litigation plays affecting the outcome and the ambition of climate governance. This is quite important. It shows that really there's an acknowledgement by the international society and the IPCC report gets uh, approved by representatives of all uh, countries, all states, that litigation is really making an impact. And secondly, it is also important to note that not all climate litigation or strategic litigation is aligned with climate goals. We don't have to talk uh, time to talk much about this now, but just look at what happened today if you've read the news with the new uh, decision by the US Supreme Court in West Virginia versus EPA to understand that litigation come from all directions and the decisions can also go in uh, different directions. So with that, I want to pass on to Kate. And uh, again, you have the full report soon to uh, look. 
Thank you, Joanna. And thank you all so much uh, for coming, both our on online and in-person audiences. It's um, always a pleasure to be uh, launching uh, something after uh, su such a lot of work on it. Um, so as Joanna said, I'm going to take us through a few of the key trends that we identified when we looked at strategic litigation uh, cases for this year's report. And the first thing I'd say is that this is really a pretty diverse group of cases. Um, so one of the things that we've done this year is to develop a typology of the types of strategies that are being used in uh, different types of uh, cases. And rather than looking at the legal grounds or the legal argumentation, we're looking at what the targets of the litigation are. So what is the behavior that the litigants are seeking to uh, discourage or seeking to incentivize from governments and companies? Now, I'm not going to take you through the full typology because we don't have time and we want you all to read the report. Um, but I am going to tell you that one of the things that we thought was quite interesting when we broke down the cases in this way was the sheer number of cases that we found that are challenging uh, all of government responses to um, climate inaction. Um, that's the cases that we call government framework cases in the sort of small gray bubble um, in uh, the image on your screen. And these are cases that really follow in the footsteps of the uh, cases you may have heard of, Agenda Foundation in the state of the Netherlands, Juliana in the United States, Ligari and Pakistan. There are 65 of these that have now been filed around the world with more than 20 in the last year alone. Uh, and um, there are more than 70 if you look at uh, cases in the US as well. Moving on from the cases against uh, governments, one of the other things that we look at in the report is cases against companies. And this year, we've seen that while uh, cases continue to be filed against the carbon majors, that is uh, the world's biggest um, uh, oil and gas fossil fuel producers, we're also seeing a major diversity in uh, the kinds of corporate litigants involved in climate litigation. So in the figure on the right of your screen, you can see the different sectors uh, that have been implicated in litigation in the past year. And we're seeing uh, new cases filed against companies involved in plastics, involved in food and agriculture, and involved in finance. There is I said there's a lot of diversity in the kinds of strategies that litigants are employing. A lot of that is found in these corporate cases. This is where um, the most novelty is really happening. Uh, and two of the kind of major trends that we're seeing is cases that target a company's overall emissions, including their scope three emissions, arguing that there's a duty to reduce those emissions, and also companies that are based in misinformation and greenwashing, what we call climate washing in the report. So the final thing that I'll talk about before we hand back to uh, Connor and Robert to introduce our panel is uh, the future trends that we identify in the report. Now, one of the things that we look at in some detail is the uh, way in which the international multilateral negotiations on climate change and climate litigation are influenced and are influenced by one another. Uh, that point that Joanna was making about what the IPCC has found for the first time. And we've used that to try and predict what we might see in climate litigation over the next year. So the first thing that we see is more, uh, we think we'll see is more cases focused on the personal responsibility that company directors and politicians have uh, for keeping to climate commitments. And this is something that we think arises out of what was being called the credibility gap following COP26, a real lack of trust 
um, that we see uh, growing in the international community. We also think we're going to see uh, cases that follow some of the most recent sort of debates around the science. Uh, and the three things that we've highlighted here are cases um, challenging uh, government or corporate emissions reduction plans that over rely on emissions removals. Uh, so technology designed to really emphasize the net part of net zero rather than the zero part. Cases focused on short-lived climate pollutants, particularly methane, uh, which has been uh, a topic of major scientific research recently, uh, and also cases looking at the climate and biodiversity nexus. And of course, that feeds into this question of greenhouse gas removals in big ways. And the final thing that we think is going to be uh, a big topic in the litigation world uh, in the next 12 months is the issue of loss and damage, in particular in the international sphere, because, of course, COP27 uh, held in Egypt uh, is really going to focus on uh, this issue. Uh, but also, we think we may start seeing more cases trying to bring this before domestic and regional courts as well. So we'll leave it there. Uh, thank you all very much for listening. It's, as we've said, been a bit of a whistle-stop tour through the report, but please do go and check out uh, the full report online. Uh, I was going to ask you all to fill in the questions using the QR code and so on, but I think Connor did an excellent job uh, of, of lambasting you all about that for me, so I don't have to. So, Connor, back to you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Marvellous, marvellous start uh, to the evening. Uh, just to say, there will be opportunities for questions. People in the room, have a think about questions, and you'll be catching my eye in the traditional way. People online, have a think about questions. Try and remember to include who you are if you can. And we've got somebody who's going to keep an eye on us. Uh, somebody's already booking a question. A bit forward, sorry. And uh, <laughs> we'll get them from Emily, who's looking after online. So you will be noticed. Now, it's a tremendous pleasure for me to move on to introduce the person who has been a very powerful presence in the environmental and planning field in law which is my own discipline, of course, Robert Carmuth here, once one time judge in the Supreme Court, Justice of the Supreme Court. And I'm delighted to say a visiting professor at LSC. I was less delighted to see that he's currently a visiting professor at UCL as well. <laughs> <laughs> that diminished the quality honorary of his contribution. Honorary, I'm pleased to say, honorary. <laughs> uh, so Robert's uh, going to introduce the speakers. I'm going to be keeping an eye on the timing with you guys because five minutes keeps it to the point where we have good conversations later. Robert, welcome to back to LSE. Thank you. A uh, great pleasure to be here. I'm actually, I'm technically a visiting professor in practice at the LSE. I'm not quite worked out what that means. I think it means I'm on trial as well. <laughs> With a bit of practice, I may turn into a proper professor, but <laughs> I think that'll be too late for my... Anyway, um, it's been an enormous pleasure. I must say one of the things that sort of kept me going over the last two difficult years has been the pleasure of working with Joanna and Kate, who enormous enthusiasm for everything they do, and they've sort of kept me involved, and it's been an enormous pleasure. So thank you so much. Uh, it's been wonderful. Uh, uh, this report, which I got in sort of draft a week or so ago, is a, is a remarkable achievement. I mean, it seems to bring together all sorts of things which I knew about you know, in, in general, but I certainly hadn't sort of looked at to that degree. And um, I think it's beautifully brought together. I'm not going to take up uh, any significant time now, but I think one of the things that I think is probably new to this report, and I think perhaps you, you mentioned, is the sort of as you say, looking at the strategy of cases, but also looking at, you distinguish between what you call climate-aligned strategies and non-climate-aligned strategies, 
which is a, a, a sort of tactful way of saying ones which are actually going against the, the, the trend of the others. And it does need to be remembered that litigation can work both ways. I mean, the, the Supreme Court American decision today, which we'll be hearing more about later, I'm sure, is one which I don't know whether you call that non-aligned, I suspect. Um, but th there's a very interesting table in this report. Um, well, there's two. There's one at page 16, which is what, looking at the different ways that actions are brought to, to sort of push the climate change action case. And then there's one which has the, um, the opposite. And I think one's got to be very conscious of those. And in particular, you highlight there the sort of the problem of um, investor state panels where people are bringing actions against the state, where companies are bringing actions against the state to sort of challenge their policies of restricting um, the, the use of fossil fuels and so on. And that's quite a difficult and growing area. And I think it's going to need to be looked at very carefully. Um, my one other comment is I never quite worked out which is Global South and which is Global North. Uh, there, I'm told that Australia is, although in the South, is Global North, whereas China, I think, is said to be Global South. But um, anyway, I'm sure it, it makes a lot of sense. But I think one thing that isn't covered, and I think will need to be in the future, is actually the litigation in China, which I think there's a lot of going on there, but quite getting much information about what is actually happening, what its effect is, is very difficult. But I think we'll probably need to be looking at that in the future. But again, with that, those very few remarks, I have pleasure to turn to the our very distinguished panel. And we start, I think, with a, a remote panelist. Is she there or? She is yeah, she's good. <laughs> this is um, uh, welcome, Rhoda Verheyen, who is a partner at the firm at Gunter and Partner and a leading litigator in the field of climate litigation. So over to you, five minutes, strictly controlled, is that right? <laughs> strictly controlled, I, I will try. Hello from Hamburg, from hot Hamburg, I should say. We're in the middle of a heat wave, which of course has nothing to do with climate change at all. So um, let's turn to what I have been asked to do in five minutes. I am indeed a litigator. I have brought um, cases in most of the categories identified in your report, I think, um, including the Neubauer case in RWE and the European case and, and whatnot. And I'm currently also bringing some uh, cases against um, automobile companies in Germany. So I've been asked to actually go first, which shows that I think we all know the trend is going towards actually looking at other actors. Um, I say that we're in actually in the middle of a struggle. Who is responsible for transitioning? Um, is it states? Is it private actors? And courts must find their place. That's what I personally experience right now. So what I think must be seen more broadly is that greenhouse gas emissions are horizontal. They emanate from and affect private people. The state itself is not primarily an emitter. Its regulation protects human rights arguments, those affected, but it does not impose a duty of tolerance. And that's why I think we're seeing more shell type cases. And that's also a very important conclusion to my mind from the Philippines Human Rights Commission. So I think that needs to be broadened. That understanding is just kind of, yeah, 
it's it's small in terms of baby steps, um, but we're getting there. It's just what I see from the cases I advise and from the cases I myself bring, the civil courts are not quite there yet, and we need to kind of nudge them a little bit. So that's what I will try and talk about a little bit more. I'll try and make four points, hopefully. So first of all, Neubauer-type cases or Ochenda-type cases and shell-type cases, they are being recognized and reaching management. So the risk of climate change litigation on all of these levels that you identify are actually being recognized. I can feel that myself. Why? Because I'm nearly almost always this close to burnout because I'm being asked to please, can you speak to us? And that was never the case before. So I think you're actually missing a table in your report, and that is how many times a litigator is actually now asked to speak in front of management. That is very important. So the second point, um, and it's actually quite nice to do so because you feel that it might actually make a larger change in terms of CO2 emissions and methane emissions than all of these cases might in substance. So then the second point that I'm trying to now bring in front of the German courts, or we are, because there are several cases, as you noted, we think that each large emitter has to observe a CO2 budget. That's not far-fetched. It's actually quite logical when you look at the Norbauer case and the Shell case. But the problem is, how do you measure that? How do you quantify it? How do you quantify the claim and compliance? It depends on where you look, you know, which, which point you, you take, the company's point or the claimant's point. In both, in both points of views, you have to quantify your claim or measure compliance. So I really think we need a legal and a scientific debate about a methodology, and in, in particular for scope three emissions. That's very necessary. I can't do it. I'm not an academic, so I'm calling on everybody out there to please engage in that regard. It is not easy. There are a lot of things out there. Um, we personally, or I personally, have started taking uh, the International Energy Agency scenarios and pathways to actually apply it on private emitters and private sectors. Uh, I think it, well, that works quite well, but it, there's next to absolutely, or no, there's absolutely no literature on this out there. So we need more. Uh, the third point I want to make um, was already made in your last slide, um, I think, Catherine, the costs and adaptations. Why aren't there more cases out there? I really do wonder. My RWE case has been in case in, in court since 2015. We're claiming um, adaptation costs, essentially, for a risk of a glacial outburst, of outburst floods. We just re returned from Peru from a site visit. We have a court who repeatedly said that yes, civil law is applicable and still there is very little activity. I know there will be cases coming forward, but few as far as I know. Do we really still need the NGOs to take these cases? Is that really the state of the art? I, I actually think we will see a lot more activity from other areas and from other actors and from other litigators. That's, you know, the next point, greenwashing and corporate climate obligations. The issue of greenhouse gas neutrality and compensation looms. It is already in court. It gives me stomach ulcer to read what the companies are writing. I have to really be honest. This is one of the points that really concerns me because there is next to no regulation to what I can actually call compensation or greenhouse gas neutrality even. 
And when you look closely at what Switzerland is arguing in the Swiss ladies case, when you look closely at what Shell is now arguing, you have to really watch out. Because if we start interpreting corporate climate obligations in, this, in these terms, there will be no reductions in emissions whatsoever. Um, the fifth point is we have a huge opening in Europe, which is new laws implementing the UNGP. Due diligence obligations and value chain legislation is a new tool and it will be used. I think that is not even only my opinion. <laughs> so, um, so I think we have to look and look at that category next time around. Um, I would like to draw attention to, of everybody to emerging regulation in this field, which is Article 15 of the proposed regulation uh, directive on due diligence, corporate due diligence directive by the EU. Obviously, sorry, you guys in London can't apply that, but uh, we might be able to. So we're thinking about winding up now, actually. I am. I am almost finished. You do not, not have because, to stop me. Not because I'm offended by Brexit. I, I, <laughs> Let me read that, though, because it's actually quite important and very few people know what's going on in that direction. So the new, the new article would read, member states shall ensure that companies define a plan to ensure that the company's business model and strategy are compatible with 1.5 degrees. Full stop. We don't have to wait for that. It will obviously be have to you know, be transposed and things. There's lots of other law out there which we can still use and litigation in that field is emerging at best. Thank you for letting me go first. And I think I kept to my five minutes. <laughs> Thank you very much, Broda. And um, you did very well to keep to time in spite of these interruptions, <laughs> right? <laughs> the, um, we now move on quickly though to Mark Bodaga, who's Senior Program Manager of Natural Justice Nairobi Hub. He provides strategic advice on and supports litigation across different program areas. And in addition to policy and legal reform advocacy, he also assists in providing technical and legal advice to partners, affected communities and other stakeholders. So over to you, Mark. Thank you for that introduction and uh, good evening from Nairobi. Um, it's a pleasure to be part of this and uh, I'll join everyone in congratulating the authors of this report for pulling it together and for the contribution it continues to make to our understanding of climate change litigation as it evolves. Um, I want to make two broad points, just giving some reflections, very closely tied to the work that we do, working with communities responding to environmental justice and climate justice issues. One is, I think, uh, recognizing something that the report acknowledges is um, movement lawyering as a very strategic um, issue that cases take up. Um, and I think that's something that is clearly reflected in, in the cases that we've been involved with. Um, I think there's a discernible recognition of the importance of placing affected communities at the center of these cases on the continent. So it's a very conscious effort um, and one that acknowledges that litigation also plays a role in empowering these communities and giving them a sense of agencies and defending and affirming their rights. Um, and I think it's, it's, an, it's an approach that in part responds to you know, the distributive justice questions that often arise in climate justice debate. And the fact that in, in lots of instances, it's these communities who stand to bear the brunt of climate impact. I don't think that's controversial, 
but yet quite often are not adequately consulted. So I think um, uh, some of the listeners will be very familiar with the often cited Lamuko case, um, which took a very community-centered approach and this spawned uh, the decolonized movement, which galvanized opposition at various levels, right from the local level to the national level and international levels. And I think it's a trend that continues. I think there's recent examples. Um, I think in South Africa, we've seen recent cases challenging Shell and Impact Africa's seismic studies off the wild coast. And one of the central issues in that case, again, is the issue of adequate consultation. Um, another really good example highlighted in the report is the Council Coal case in South Africa. And again, this sees uh, a youth-led movement challenging plans to procure additional coal power in South Africa. Um, so I think it's a trend that hopefully should continue. And one important consequence, I think, of this approach is the potential to spur more similar cases. Um, there's often a very David versus Goliath sort of effect, particularly when these cases are successful and communities succeed. And I think then that spurs other communities to also uh, have confidence in, in taking on certain cases against often big and powerful uh, projects that are uh, state-sponsored. I think the other point I wanted to speak about is the, the a growing trend in, in cases that seek to address support for fossil fuels as a matter of constitutional and human rights. And it's something that builds on a rich history, definitely on the continent of socioeconomic uh, rights litigation uh, grounded in constitutions and even in the regional courts. Um, one example, again, and I'll, and I'll speak because from close experiences, uh, a case recently brought in 2021 by a community challenging a minister's decision to authorize, again, oil and exploration off the coast of KwaZulu-Natal. Um, this case challenges the failure to consider potential climate impacts um, and, and, and assesses the needs and the desirability of the project. And again, I think the report makes a really good point that in some way, some of these cases are also picking up from the Glasgow Climate Pact um, and the outcomes to one of the clear outcomes, which is to phase out fossil fuels. The other case that I think is worth mentioning, again, in this context is a case challenging the development of a crude oil pipeline that traverses Uganda and Tanzania. What's interesting in this case is Whereas most cases have been filed at national level, this is a case that's being filed at the regional level. And I think in part, it raises, again, human rights concerns, and it's grounded in human rights concerns, right from displacements of families and farmers to the risks of inland water resources um, and potential transboundary impacts in Lake Victoria, which is a shared water resource between Kenya, Uganda, and Tanzania. Um, I think what is interesting about this case is the strategic decision, which I think the parties took to file it at a regional court as opposed to a national court. And I think it also reflects the growing pressure, particularly now with the Ukraine and Russian crisis, where we see lots of states also giving huge support for the development of fossil fuel projects. So this is a case where parties are trying to litigate at a sub-regional level. Um, just very lastly, also, I think it's very interesting to see there are a few non-climate aligned strategic cases, um, and I'll specifically focus on just transition cases. So in Kenya, um, there's a Lake Turkana wind power project, which is a 300 megawatt wind farm in Kenya, uh, completed in 2017 and rightfully lauded for being a right step towards green energy transition. Uh, yet very recently in 2021, 
the courts in Kenya forced that project again for violating a number of, uh, of, of rights. Uh, presently, before our energy tribunal, there's also a case brought by communities, again, challenging a geothermal power project. And one of the key arguments in the Lamu coal case was Kenya's huge geothermal potential, which made the idea of a coal plant really ridiculous. But again, here we see, again, courts, again, very grounded in human rights arguments, raising the question that even in renewable energy projects, human rights needs, needs to be respected. Um, so I think those are some, some of the thoughts and observations that I, I think I, I noted from the report and wanted to highlight. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Mark. That was fascinating. And again, very much according to time. We're very grateful for that um, intervention. Now we move to someone who's here beside me, sitting yeah. on my left, is Anna Carolina Haluk, Haluk yeah. a federal prosecutor from Brazil. Her work focuses on contextualizing environmental crimes and climate protection in relation to other crimes, such as fraud, land grabbing, and money laundering. Sounds very interesting. Over to you. <laughs> Thank you. I am so pleased to be here today. Um, so in these five minutes, I will address first the role of deforestation as an object of climate litigation in South America, and particularly in Brazil. And second, the role of the prosecution service in advancing climate litigation in my country. Now, we have seen um, in the Global Trends report a strong focus on fossil fuels, and that is completely understandable. Fossil fuels are the major driver of climate change in this globe. But I must say that the pattern of GHG emissions in South America and in Brazil, in Colombia, in Peru, in Bolivia and Ecuador is inextricably related to deforestation in the Amazon. In Brazil, for instance, in 2020, deforestation in the Amazon alone, other biomes excluded, accounted for almost 50 percent of our emissions. So back home in my country, talking about climate change means talking about deforestation. Reason why it's not surprising that climate litigation and its contributions to the advancement of environmental law in Brazil have been intimately connected to deforestation tackling. At least two of our Supreme Court judges have already recognized the connection between obligations under the Paris Agreement and the constitutional right to a healthy environment in deforestation-related cases. One of them has expressly stated that the Paris Agreement is a human rights treaty, such a progressive statement. When we discuss challenging high emission activities financing, we do so looking at who is financing deforestation and the commodities that benefit from it. And when we debate personal responsibilities, we ask ourselves how climate-related arguments can actually contribute to stronger sanctions against those who are directly responsible for illegal deforestation in the Amazon. That's what we live and debate all the time, not meaning that fossil fuels and other topics are not there, but that we have a different, distinct and important focus that might be eventually overlooked in the global north. Now, the prosecution service in Brazil has a special role in this scenario. You may think of prosecutors as lawyers who accuse criminals of wrongdoings, and that is basically what I do most of my time, prosecuting people for illegal acts of deforestation, and that includes investigating and prosecuting, along with uh, environmental crimes, acts of fraud, falsifications, uh, land grabbing, 
money laundering violences against traditional communities, which come along, uh, committed by um, criminal organizations. I believe that climate-related arguments can help to understand the gravity of these conflicts. But there are three other aspects of my job where climate arguments can dwell, and I would like to highlight them. First, the prosecution service is legally entitled to protect the environment and to adopt any legal measure to prevent and redress uh, degradation. That means that we can use a tort law to demand reparations from public and private actors, corporations and individuals. And we have done so. We have started to include, for example, amongst the, the damages related to deforestation, those damages emerging from illegal GAG emissions. The reasoning here is very simple. You have illegally emitted GAG, you must pay for its removal. Secondly, we can engage into public interest litigation, filing cases against the government with a view to enforce environmental and climate standards. And we have done so, actually, we were amongst the first institutions to do so in Brazil in a case concerning anti-deforestation policies in the Amazon during the COVID-19 pandemic. And finally, the prosecution services um, legally commanded to intervene in every public interest litigation case in the country. That means that we will, be, we will participate in climate litigation cases, even if we have not filed the case. Um, we prosecutors all over the country are preparing ourselves to advance climate arguments in all these cases concerning criminal law, tort law, and public interest litigation through our association of environmental colleagues, Abrampa, which has been uh, working hard on this. I would like to end highlighting that protecting tropical forests is surely not enough to guarantee a victory against climate change, but insufficient protection is a certain path to failure. Latin America and Brazil specifically has been producing and accumulating knowledge on litigation concerning deforestation through different actors, including the prosecution service in Brazil and elsewhere in, in other countries of South America as well. Uh, it's past time that we make this a global issue as important as fossil fuels, and I hope that we can contribute to that. Thank you. Hi. I'm interrupting this event to tell you about another awesome LSE podcast that we think you'd enjoy. LSE IQ asks social scientists and other experts to answer one intelligent question, like, why do people believe in conspiracy theories? Or, can we afford the super rich? Come check us out. Just search for LSE IQ wherever you get your podcasts. Now, back to the event. Uh, thank you again. I had no idea that the sort of prosecution's role was quite so wide-spreading. You seem to get involved in everything, which is probably bad, given your president is probably bad. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> um, anyway, I've not had a talk about politics. Um, now we pass over to, uh, I think, Michael Berger, who is on remote, and there he is on screen, who's the executive director of Columbia Law School Sabin Center for Climate Change Law, which is, you know, is one of the great leaders in um, documenting climate cases around the world, and particularly in America. Uh, he's also counsel at Sheer Edling LLP, represents states, cities, public agencies, and businesses in high impact, high value, 
environmental cases. You may even be able to tell us something about the Supreme Court case today. But over to you, to Michael, for your five minutes. Wonderful. Thank you so much. And, and thanks for the opportunity to join this, this event. Um, I, I'd like to start off by just giving a quick word of acknowledgement to two of my colleagues uh, who are not uh, here, uh, but who are, who are central to the analyses and activities um, that, are, that are taking place. Uh, Maria Antonia Tigre, who is uh, the Global Climate Litigation Fellow at the Sabin Center and is responsible for maintaining our global climate litigation database, which helps inform uh, Joanna and Kate's work, and Margaret Barry, who maintains our U.S. climate litigation database, which um, obviously factors into, into this work as well. Um, okay, I'm going to talk about two things quickly. Uh, one is the, the, the litigation in the United States against fossil fuel companies, corporate accountability loss uh, litigation, which I work on uh, in my role with Cher Edling, and the other is the Supreme Court's decision <laughs> from this morning, which has occupied pretty much every every moment of my day for the last five hours. Um, in terms of the litigation filed by states and by local governments against fossil fuel companies, you know, there are more than two dozen cases at this point which are seeking either compensation for climate damages or penalties for violation of consumer state consumer protection laws. Um, these, this litigation is complex. They're, the cases are at different stages up and down the levels of the federal and the state courts in the United States. Uh, but one thing I would just want to note is that the cases that are furthest along moving towards merits are two cases that are in Hawaii, uh, one filed by Maui uh, and one filed by Honolulu, the city and county of Honolulu. Um, and those cases are back in state court and are at motions to dismiss. And we are getting close to actually arguing about fossil fuel companies' um, responsibility for, for climate change as a result of their historic disinformation campaigns and failure to warn about the, the uh, risks that their project poses. One thing I wanna note about these in relationship to the report is that, you know, it's always interesting to me as an academic and as a practitioner to think about the categorization of cases as strategic um, or not strategic. These are cases that I think many would, would clearly say these are strategic cases that are meant to um, have major impacts on fossil fuel companies and the way that that whole sector operates. But from a practitioner's perspective, these cases are about the clients. And these cases are about providing compensation or obtaining penalties for wrong behavior. Um, and it's just interesting to think about how, how litigation um, looks depending on where you stand in relationship to it. Uh, which brings me to, the, to this morning's Supreme Court decision in the case of West Virginia versus the Environmental Protection Agency here in the United States. Uh, for those who are not familiar with that litigation, this is one of the countervailing lawsuits, the, the non-climate aligned uh, lawsuits that the report talks about. What I think about is backlash litigation. Um, this case, you can, it, it takes a, it, it may be helpful to take a quick step back and look at the, the first major case in the United States, Massachusetts versus EPA. Um, that was a case that resulted uh, in a Supreme Court decision after six years of legal advocacy in front of administrative agencies and the federal courts. It ultimately resulted in a bare majority of the US Supreme Court affirming that states have standing to bring litigation challenging the failure of the government to regulate greenhouse gas emissions. And that standing was an affirmation of the core basic climate science that is central to all climate litigation. The idea that 
emissions contribute to climate change, which is having localized impacts in individual states, and that they therefore have a right to stand up in court um, and argue about the failure of the government to take action. Um, it also affirmed, importantly, the federal government's authority to, to regulate greenhouse gas emissions under the Clean Air Act. Now, since then, the, the, the US government still has not regulated greenhouse gas emissions from existing power plants, the single biggest source or second biggest source, depending on what year you're counting the numbers of greenhouse gas emissions in the United States. The effort to regulate those emissions resulted in the Clean Power Plan, which ultimately resulted in today's decision. And so I just wanna, rather than go into the whole background, I wanna just make a quick note about what today's decision does not do. So today's decision does not reverse Massachusetts versus EPA. It does not in any way undo the US EPA's authority to regulate greenhouse gas emissions, but it does provide important and, and critical restraints on what, how EPA is going to go about regulating greenhouse gas emissions. In reaching this decision, the Supreme Court basically issued an advisory opinion. So we have six judges who issued an opinion on a rule that is not in effect, that the agency has no intention of enforcing, that has actually been surpassed in the sense that the power plants that are subject to this regulation are already in compliance with it, and in many instances, well beyond compliance with it. And still the judges, the justices on the Supreme Court issued a decision about whether or not that rule would be legal. I just, I want to, I, I think it's important to note that, and I'm going to, I'll come back to this point later, climate litigation does not move in one direction and the courts are not always the place where you want to be to achieve positive climate aligned results. In addition, what the Supreme Court did was it established a new rule, a new doctrine, the major questions doctrine, which will factor in significant ways into all US litigation at the federal level from here on out, because what the Supreme Court set has said is that there are certain questions that are just so important, so big, of such vast economic and political significance that Congress, the, the, the legislature has to speak very specifically about an intent to allow the agency to take specific kinds of action. This gives the court a virtual veto over high ambition, high innovation regulation at the federal level. So it's an extremely limiting tool for advocates and it's an extremely um, powerful tool for judges who want to take certain kinds of action. So I'll close just by noting that this case is highly significant. This is without question the biggest US case of, of the year and in, in many years. Um, it does not undo the agency's authority to tackle climate change and climate change can continue to be approached at the federal level, at the state level, at the local level and within the corporate sector. But climate litigation does, is, is neither linear nor is it unilateral in the direction that it moves. The courts are just as available to those who oppose climate action and would seek to limit agencies' authorities or the requirements and obligations of, corp of, of corporate actors as they are to those who are in favor of more ambitious climate action. And we see and there, there has always been litigation that moves along that trajectory and there will continue to be um, more and more of it as governments and, and as governments ratchet up ambition and as corporations themselves um, feel pressure to take on more and more uh, ambitious, uh, you know, obligations. So I'll stop there. Thank you very much. 
Uh, thank you so much, Michael. Um, that was very, very clear and concise. And given the five year hours you spent on the judgment, <laughs> you did very well to yeah, distill it into yeah, two yeah. minutes. Yeah. But I suspect there's going to be a lot of discussion about that in the future. Um, so I turn to our last speaker, who's sitting beside mm -hmm. me, um, Anne Corrigan, who's Deputy Head of Legal at the Bank of England, with oversight across the Legal Directorate on Climate Matters. So over to you, Anne. Thank you very much. And thank you very much for the report, an amazing, amazing piece of work. What I wanted to do today was to talk to you about the impact, but also the relevance of the report um, to the work that we do and the work, um, its practical effect uh, in, in public policy making. Um, what the review does is focus on the part in the process of um, transitioning to a, a net zero economy um, that is played by litigation. It's, litigation comes through the report as a catalyst and a stimulus of change um, at public policy level and increasingly at the firm level. But it's also there, as we can see um, in the presentations, as a means to protect the rights of individuals or potentially as a, as a um, break um, that is used by the firms themselves. So litigation is a valuable tool to, assess, to assist in the transition to net zero, but it's not a substitute um, for the clear and well-communicated strategic public policy um, making that is needed by um, at the government level. Um, and it's that that will determine the pace and the nature of transition ultimately. As an institution, the Bank of England is all about risk and good management of risk. We're guided entirely by our objectives, which are set out in statute, and those are um, relate to macro and micro financial stability in the entities that the PRA um, regulates um, and price stability, and that the bank regulates, and also price stability. Like all central banks and regulators, the Bank of England has a role to play. And as with firms and individuals, that role is informed by the pace and nature of change set at the strategic public policy level. So we welcome this incredibly valuable resource and the work of the LSE. Uh, it feeds into and it enriches our understanding of the means by which litigation risk might translate and convert in our <coughs> case into prudential risk. Um, a great paper that shows direct examples of central bank thinking about prudential risk and, and, uh, and climate litigation is shown by the report published by the Network for Greening the Financial System um, called Climate Related Litigation, Raising Awareness About the Growing Source of Risk. Um, our LSE colleagues uh, supported this work and the report shows clearly how litigation risk is taken seriously by central banks across the globe. In the UK, the, the Bank of England, in our Climate Biannuals um, Exploratory Scenario, which we published in May, um, explored the financial risks posed by climate change for the largest UK banks and insurers. So the CBES, along with all of our stress testing, is very much a stylized and, um, uh, and hypothetical scenario and it illustrates possible paths of climate risk uh, with the aim of looking at how the firms that we regulate 
um, um, assess climate, um, climate risk, how they uh, mitigate and adapt themselves in the face of climate risk, and how their own actions and the actions of um, their clients um, and collectively, uh, how that changes um, and impacts behaviors within the economy. And potentially, um, we look for potential undesirable system-wide consequences um, on the macro side. As we can see from the LSE review, um, climate-related litigation is increasing globally. So what we did this, this time was to work with the London market for general insurers, um, which operates globally, um, and we launched an exercise on climate litigation risk as part of our CBES. The aim there was to identify the potential scale of climate litigation risks and catalyze firms' own thinking and own actions to develop or further develop their processes to monitor and manage such risks. The exercise asked firms to consider seven different hypothetical cases to explore possible exposures to climate-related litigation. And with the firms, we looked at their ability to assess climate litigation risk, um, their own exposure, uh, their potential exposure, that is, uh, and their possible responses to climate litigation. What's so fascinating, I think, about this review is that we can see some of the, our hypothetical uh, cases actually beginning to come to come to the courts <laughs> <laughs> um, for assessment. Um, and for us, actually, in the Bank of England, it says to underline the importance of our scenario testing uh, to build our own understanding and the firm's understanding and the firm's resilience um, to be ready for the real life impacts that are actually beginning to flow through the system now, uh, because this is a massively fast moving field. The aim for us is always about understanding the optionality within prudential risk uh, so that we can regulate and support firms and their own actions uh, to continue so that they continue to provide the critical services that are necessary to support the economy. Um, and for our firms and our firms and for firms globally, the LSE review will have an ongoing and crucial role to play in the identification, understanding and management of, cli of, of climate risk and climate litigation risk, and therefore for us, prudential risk. Thank you. And, and thank you. Thank you very much. Terrific. I mean, really, really excellent. Look, all, all, well done, all of you, for coming within decent time. Uh, very good, actually. Robert, you've been listening quietly. You know a thing or two about this. Have you any immediate thoughts on what we have heard from our panellists thus far before I come to the audience and the chap who caught my attention at two in the afternoon has caught my attention again? Uh, have you any thoughts? Um, well, there's so much there that one could discuss. I think there's two points occur to me. Um, one is these trying to work out which cases actually make a practical difference. And we've, there are a lot of cases going on. Some of them are frankly pretty speculative and there's always a danger of these speculative cases that get sort of slightly bogged down and take years to work through the courts and don't achieve very much because you know, we're dealing with an urgent problem. But it's often quite difficult to work out which ones are successful. I mean, Michael mentioned 
great case of Massachusetts and EPA. And that was enormously significant, but not for reasons one would have seen at the time. It so happened that we then had a President Obama who had enormous difficulty getting any legislation through Congress. And so actually the Clean Air Act became a massive tool which enabled him to develop policies, which enabled him credibly to go to the world and actually form the basis for the, the sort of China-America pact and in due course the Paris Agreement. So we probably wouldn't have had the Paris Agreement without Massachusetts and EPA. I would be interested in what Michael thinks about that. Whereas other cases, I suspect, may get sort of bogged down without going anywhere. I, I, I suspect that the big development era, and I think others think that it's going to be in the questions of personal responsibility of directors in different features. I think there's going to be a lot of litigation there. And of course, where you're dealing with personal responsibility, there's every reason for the people concerned to do something about it. So that I think is, is it, but you know, one needs to look at what is a practical the other thing, which doesn't really get a mention because it's not really within the scope of your report, is the role of independent climate change committees, such as we have expert independent committees. I think we're very lucky in this country to have a statutory body, which is very expert, and it's only just now produced its latest progress report telling the government they're not doing enough. And to some extent, that explains why we haven't had a lot of litigation in this country. But I think it's very interesting to see how the role of the climate change committees in different countries feeds into the litigation process. But I think it's a very important part of any legislative scheme that one does have that independent, um, respected group, which can actually provide the technical input. But otherwise, the courts are slightly sort of failing around, certainly in my case, trying to understand the sort of technical materials. So there were just two thoughts. Great. Thank you. Thank you very much, Robert. Now, uh, we have a lot of panelists and we have about 25 minutes left. So I've got this gentleman to kick us off. I'm, I'm looking, you sort of need to wave your hand and not just put it to squeeze. I have a lady there. Yes, your hand is up. No, don't look at everybody else. It's you. It's you. It's you. So get yourself ready. Uh, and we have another lady here. And I'm sorry, there might be, we might fit some more in. So one, two, three. Name, comment, question preferable. And please, we have so many people. If you, if you direct it to somebody, that will help us enormously. And, and have we got anything, Emily, on the, on the, on the remote? Yeah, so we, we'll go to remote after that. And we might pack a few in. Be as concise as you can. Sir, kick us off to a good start. Name, concise question, aimed at who? Thank you. Just checking this is on. Can you yes, hear me? Yes, perfect. Good. perfect. Uh, Mike Clark. Uh, my question concerns loss and damage. So going back to an early slide, the fifth bullet point um, from the LSE work. Um, I'm an actuary. I gave a talk last week entitled Loss and Damage, a call to action to actuaries. So let us replace actuaries with lawyers. The subtext was mitigation, adaptation, loss and damage. How can actuaries and finance accelerate progress? Because I'm less optimistic after the intercessionals in Bonn that Sharm el-Sheikh will do that much about loss and damage. So if the panel, and I'm sorry, it's a panel question, so That's you right. may choose who answers it. If the panel were giving a talk to incite their fellow lawyers to up their game tomorrow, what points would they make in that talk? Thank you. Thank you very much, Mike. Mike, was that the name, Mike? Thank you very much, Mike. And we will get to each panelist, however briefly, and they will remember to bring this in. We've got uh, the lady, and there's a microphone right beside you, and then there was another lady a bit further down here. Your hand is back up. 
And that means they will be able to get to you. So it's this lady here. But first, madam, your you. name, wherever you're from, or whatever, if you want, Have and question. Hi, I'm Margarita Cornaglia, barrister from Doughty Street. Uh, just a quick question about climate-aligned litigation. I know Rhoda touched on this briefly by saying that she would have expected more action around RWE-style cases. I was wondering whether other panelists have views about where there's a visible gap in climate-aligned litigation. What do you think is missing from what you've seen and what you've looked up? Perhaps primarily Joanna and Kate, but everyone. That's very, very, very good. Thank you very much. And, and not excluding Rhoda, though she has covered it. Uh, Third question in this round. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, my name is Juliana. I'm a PhD student at the University of Reading. And my question is addressed to Joanna and Catherine. And um, my question is, um, what is what is triggering the increase of climate-related cases? What do you think? What is why this trend is going up? And um, I, I wonder if there are like more opportunities legally and politically for uh, litigation. And I also wonder if this is part of, like of this of the scope of your uh, report, whether if climate movements are like are seeing more value in litigation as a mobilization strategy um, in comparison to previous years. Thank Wonderful. you. Thank you very much. Uh, Away you go. Kick off with kick the third off. question, maybe. All right. Thank you. Um, I'll kick off with the third question. And I think you, 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 you brought it in a, in a very good way in that we're not seeing individual cases. This is part of a movement. And I, th I would say that's important because it's a movement of using the law. There are many different movements that are needed to address such a complicated, complex pro problem. And so the law is one. And it's one that has potential power. And uh, as we've seen also from it, it accelerates, more cases accelerate more cases. And, and that's good and bad because what we're seeing, you know, Mike said about the backlash. So litigation can bring more litigation and it comes in all directions. But what is positive about that, I would say, is that as a movement of legal mobilization is a movement that is inclusive and it's, bringing so many actors and important parts of the story together. And just look at this panel and, and you see their regulators, their prosecutors. So you, we talk about fossil fuels, we talk about deforestation, judges. So it is a movement that is not about the law, but it's a movement that is bringing all the necessary voices to address this problem together, sadly opposing each other often, but still it's a storytelling and it's potentially uh, um, something that could be transformative. Kate, okay. do you want to follow with this? No, another question. Absolutely. And maybe I'll respond to Margarita's question. Um, but first, just a word on that. I think, you know, what Mark has been um, uh, saying about movement lawyering is really a crucial part of answering that, that question you've just asked. Uh, we do see, you know, uh, movements getting inspired, learning, engaging in different ways as a litigation takes place. Uh, and it can be a vehicle for, um, you know, kind of bringing lots of people into the room. And then that inspiration, I think, does uh, definitely contribute to uh, more and more cases. Uh, so I think, uh, you know, uh, if we look at the examples that Mark was highlighting, that's a really good way of uh, kind of understanding that. Uh, to address your question, Margarita, about uh, gaps in the litigation, uh, I think I would echo what Rhoda said. Uh, I think there aren't um, as many cases looking at the costs of adaptation as 
really the issue merits. And I think the reason for that is because they are hard. Uh, and so, I, you know, I think um, this is a testament to the bravery of uh, Rhoda and, and, uh, and indeed Mike and the other colleagues um, uh, working with the U.S. cities and states that have uh, gone out to try and make these claims uh, about compensation, which do require us to get into questions about who knew what, when, what should they have done? How are we quantifying that? Whose responsibility is brought in? And so, you know, I think one reason we might not see as many of those cases as uh, the issue merits is perhaps because people are hoping uh, that the brave forerunners uh, will have some successes, uh, which could then uh, kind of lead to uh, a lot more. And then finally, just to talk to your point, uh, Mike, um, I think one of the things that I heard recently at a conference was a wonderful presentation uh, by someone who had looked at case law uh, from um, thinking about what the duties of UK solicitors actually are with respect to advising their clients and applied that to the context of climate change. And her central thesis was UK solicitors are under a duty already to advise their clients uh, about climate risks uh, and about ways to mitigate those risks. And so, you know, to, to lawyers to spur them to take more action, I think there could be personal case, uh, responsibility cases uh, within the legal profession. Uh, so hopefully that would make people think uh, for a moment or two. No, no, no follows up. Sorry, sorry. <laughs> I knew he was a fanatic when he caught, when he caught my my attention yesterday. Uh, we're going to take bids for comments from, from Michael, Mark and Rhoda online first. Is there anything that pops into your head from any of the three questions? So ably handled already, and then I'll ask you, and then we get to the, uh, uh, the, the internet. Rhoda, did you have your hand up, a physical hand? How quaint. I, I just wanted to say that the RWE case, in terms of the support lent to it by the German NGOs originated from the loss and damage debate. And obviously it's always quoted as the one case that might actually bring some answers to how you can measure, how you can you know, make a non-fault standard out of loss and damage occurrences, the baseline issues, all the rest of it. Um, but they're very hard, these cases, as it was already said. And I think the answer to loss and damage in my head is in a compensation protocol that I supported and suggested in 2008. And I think it's actually sad to say that it's still very much could be tabled tomorrow and it could actually probably help. This was work we did for WWF. But I would agree that there is actually a lot of substantive work to be done in that area legally. And the gap in climate-aligned uh, litigation is the International Court of Justice, in my opinion. Very, very, very succinct. Thank you. And Michael, I, you may want to say something uh, about what Robert was saying, but Mark, I don't want uh, to cut you out. Is there anything that pops into your head or do you want to leave it for now? I'll leave it for now, thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, did you want to do you mention anything, Michael, before we go back to the panel here? I'm thinking yeah, let me, let me just respond quickly uh, on Mass versus Massachusetts versus EPA and its relationship to the Paris Agreement. I think that that's absolutely right. There's a there's a there's a real storyline that connects those two moments. That case was filed in an effort to force government action where the government was not doing anything. So it wasn't about giving a willing agency the, the authority it sought. It was just the opposite. But it did, I think, ultimately contribute directly to to the to the Paris Agreement on, on loss and damage, I, I just um, 
Well, I'll, I'll leave that alone. I have nothing really to add to, to Rhoda's comments. On the increase in litigation, on climate litigation, I appreciate very much Joanna and Kate's points about movement lawyering uh, and the role of a sort of movement around climate litigation in and of itself and a relationship between climate litigation and a broader social movement um, that's happening uh, within, within nations and, and internationally. I think that there's another factor that's worth considering, which is the institutionalization of climate legislation and regulation and policy where before there was nothing, now there's a lot. And when there's laws on the books, people litigate about it. And so there's just a, there's a clear correlation. Uh, and I would say causation, causal relationship between increased policy and, and legislation and the amount of litigation that we see happening. Yeah, great, there. great, thank you. Uh, we're going to the, we're going to the uh, remote sphere. Anna Karina, anything to add to this or should we come back to it later? Um, maybe. I have one thing. Yes, please, so please. I, I, in terms of the question about uh, climate aligned litigation and where are the gaps, I think I think this is a, a we're in a clear development process, both in terms of litigation itself and also in terms of the build out of the legal framework. So once the legal framework builds out and it comes down and it starts to bite, and it bites on firms and it bites on individuals, you I think you'll start to see um, regulatory law kicking in and so you'll get enforcement cases but in many respects we're not quite there at the moment certainly in the UK but in in the EU in the disclosure fields you've got the SFDR and you've got more and more regulatory type law coming through and once that comes through you'll start to see enforcement of that. Great thank you very much and yes yes thank you I have two uh, quick uh, thoughts to share with you first on loss and damage um, I, I believe that we must hear uh, traditional communities vulnerable communities who are the most affected and uh, um, lawyers many times do not reach them we talk about that not necessarily including them and that is something that we need to do and that relates to the idea of movement lawyering that we have seen in the report and second on what is missing in climate litigation and here i talk specifically about climate litigation in brazil i would say that we need to um further uh, the idea of which are the actual sources of obligations concerning climate change uh, are they the Paris Agreement itself, or are they coming from human rights law, constitutional uh, law, or how they relate? I think that there is something that we must develop there. Thank you. Wonderful. Now, we've got Emily here who's been keeping an eye on the remote questions. You have to pay attention, because what you're now going to hear are three questions in a row <laughs> from the same voice. So there's no excitement about a new voice. And we're not even going to ask Emily to say who she is, though she may choose to. But she is going to give us the names, we hope, of people. She has performed an editing judgment here. So these are the ones that have jumped Emily's hoops. And you are going to give us, are you going to give us three? Yes. <laughs> Terrific. This is Stand up. excellent. Away you go. Um, so this question is from... Uh, thank you. Thank you. Um, from Vishnavi uh, from India. And um, it's directed at all the panelists. Um, so how do we hold corporate players responsible in a recession and energy crisis environment and prevent backsliding in climate action policies, both as lay people and then as voters urging for better policies? 
The second question is from Ciara O'Connor, an environmental law student in France. Would the panel members like to share their views concerning the evolving role of the European Court of Human Rights, particularly in terms of intergenerational justice? And then the final question is from Adriana Alzamara, um, a student at, uh, forgive me, at the Pontificia Universidad Católica del Peru. How can climate litigation be as effective in the global south, given the highly bureaucratic nature of our judiciary power, and what efforts can be made to make these cases more effective? Terrific. Well, look, there are, there are great questions, aren't there? Very, very good questions. I'm, I'm not going to let you off the hook on one or two of those, uh, Robert. I think we should go to the primary authors first, don't you? Because they're very big ones. And uh, look, they're very reluctant to answer any of them. You've got as much time as you want. No, no. Short, succinct. Short, succinct. Uh, and I don't think I will address all the questions because many other panelists can do uh, a good job there too. So I will start with the Global South one. Um, because actually it is definitely a global south concern in terms of uh, the, the pace that a, a case will take uh, to be decided. But also, it's not just about how long it takes for a case to be decided, but also even after you have a decision, what how that decision will translate into action. And we've seen many examples of that, that even a successful decision by a Supreme Court We'll have we'll see many challenges in turning into reality. And, and, and just one example to illustrate, you have the Supreme Court in Colombia saying that deforestation is causing climate change, that's illegal. And uh, you, know, you would think that, okay, so the problem is solved, but then clearly deforestation hasn't stopped in the Amazon uh, in, in Colombia. So uh, it's a combination of the challenges of bringing a case, winning a case, and then enforcing a case. That's, of course, an issue in the global south, but also it is a, an issue everywhere. So uh, it, it, I don't want to sound pessimistic, but winning a case is also not the end of the story. And just a, a last point on that, this is why when we, we are talking about strategic litigation, it, it's a, and, and movement lawyering comes there. It's about what you build along the way. It's what you build before the case is brought, during the case is uh, going on, and, and then eventually after. So I will stop there and then pass it oh, on. Kate, do you want to come in or do you want to leave? Uh, maybe maybe I'll quickly come in on the point about uh, what what may happen or what can be done uh, about possible uh, kind of uh, backsliding on climate mm. commitments in the the context of um, the global energy crisis uh, and the rising cost of living crisis that we see in so many different countries. And I think the thing here is uh, that communities that want uh, to see uh, progress on the transition uh, towards a clean energy future um, can have a vision that includes addressing many of these issues uh, and addressing the energy crisis at the same time. And it's up to those communities to start pushing um, for uh, and, and making it difficult for political actors to go for quick and easy fixes. And so litigation, of course, does offer one route uh, to doing that. We've just heard it is never the only route. Uh, and of course, with litigation comes counter litigation, comes backlash. Um, but I do think litigation could potentially be a part of that story. Interesting. Uh, intergenerational rights, the ECHR. What do you think, Robert? <laughs> <laughs> You're a judge type. Yes. Um, I, I, I'm, I think the trouble with the European Court of Human Rights is, is that the convention 
isn't really geared to deal with environmental issues. I mean, they've been they've developed a sort of environmental jurisprudence, and it'll be very interesting to see how it works when these case, current cases get to the court. But uh, you know, I, I think there are problems in trying to squeeze um, legislation which was designed for something different to deal with this global special problem. I mean, we other areas, the Philippine Human Rights Commissioners have been able to find environmental rights, but I think it's quite difficult. Um, certainly, I, if I was a judge sitting there, I'd, I'd have my problem. Yeah, because of the text. I mean, yes. in a way, it's just not organized like that. Very interesting. A prosecutor, how do you stop backsliding? You throw them in jail. <laughs> Well, I would hope so, but it's not that, <laughs> that simple. Oh, it's not always that simple. Uh, well, uh, I would start saying that uh, on, on the global south that uh, we need to be strategic on choosing what we do prosecute, which cases we do file. But we also need to understand that this takes time. As Joanna has said on the Colombian case, uh, you have a time to reach a decision and, and then you need time to implement it. And the important thing is to keep mainstreaming climate as a point to be taken into consideration in the policymaking, in uh, judicial decision. Well, it needs to be everywhere in the hope that people will really do something about it, politicians and so on. And I think that talks also to the question on corporate responsibility, because it's kind of the same thing. We will file cases against corporations and individuals related to the forestation. We do that all the time. Uh, does that mean that means that the forestation is not going on? No, of course not. You're all seeing what's going on in Brazil. But at the same time, we keep doing so uh, on the hope that someone in these corporations who are benefiting from deforestation and so on will take action because they will have risks which will be assessed by banks and you and you see everything is kind of connected and we cannot underestimate how complex these things are and litigation being an important part of it but of course not the single solution yeah very interesting uh, you're being tempted in there <laughs> <You're> being tempted <laughs> in I know. I would say in terms of corporate responsibility and, and, and backsliding and recession and energy crisis, I, in a way, that's, that's a small part of what will be a magnified um, progression. So I, I would say we can't stop and, and cease just because uh, that small part is crystallized now. The, it, the, the legal frameworks need to carry on being built out and the assessment of risk and the prudential assessment needs to carry on. And, and as you say, litigation plays its part in, in catalyzing that and making sure it progresses, but equally so does all of the other aspects, um, both from firms themselves, because it's a cooperative thing. It's not, just, it's not just one person's responsibility, it's from the firms themselves and also the, the, um, the wider public policy. Uh, I'm going to go online. Mark, you have priority, but may choose not to say anything. You're smiling. Uh, you don't have to. It's not compulsory. No, no. Just, just a few points. I think in terms of um, the, some of the challenges we see litigating cases. Um, um, one, I think it's uh, using litigation as, as one tool uh, in a toolbox, and you have other tools. Um, Quite often, I, I think making sure that you have a complementary advocacy strategy helps 
um, so that you have an ongoing conversation about some of the realities and potential impacts uh, and putting a very human face um, so that even as you're talking about this case, people can see um, you know, it's not just an abstract notion about climate impacts, but the, the real individuals and people behind it. And that hopefully also stirs some pressure in terms of, um, a, you know, any delays as we see them in the courts or any challenges in terms of implementation. And then I'll definitely echo the sentiments that it's also about uh, seeing this not just about a win, but um, some of the outcomes that, that, that come with the process and the, the coalitions that are built. I think the other thing is also thinking about a multi-pronged strategy. Quite often in some of these cases, uh, you'll find that there are corporate actors who have reporting obligations. And so it's about not just relying on the litigation, but also connecting what's happening in the litigation, some of the evidence that's been marshaled in the litigation and channeling it at different levels. Um, I think the other point, um, I wanted to make, sorry, it escapes me. Uh, in terms of backsliding, yes. And I think the same can be said in terms of this. Um, and in terms of corporate accountability, one thing that uh, we're seeing in Kenya, for example, is increasing importance of human rights due diligence um, and, and increasing obligations on, on corporate actors to factor this in their decision-making and the support of different projects. Thanks. Brilliant. Thank you very much. We've got 30 seconds for you, Michael, and then I'm going to give Rhoda the last word, unless our report pioneers want to come in. Uh, do you want to use your 30 seconds telling us again about this case? That's taken five <laughs> or, or, not that you're a one-trick pony. I'll, I'll just say this on backsliding and other, other tools in the toolkit. People go to court when other systems fail. Um, you know, lawyers maybe like being in court, maybe some of us. Some of us might not like it so much, but it's a gamble every time and it's not where you really want to be to achieve the long-term change that's necessary for climate change or or any other problem, really. So uh, it's worth bearing that in mind. Yeah, Rhoda, I was keen to hear from you. I, I think you wanted to talk about this. We wouldn't let you for time reasons. What, what's your prediction for the coming for the coming year? That's our last one, and you're bearing the burden of a summary of the whole thing. No, I want yeah. to say something entirely different. 15, <laughs> Fifteen seconds on what you want to say. No, I want to I want to say that I have a I I completely acknowledge the importance and I lauded everybody who has been involved in this report. But I want to stress one thing: if you take cases, then you do not know what's going to happen in court. I just want to echo Michael. And not every case is a strategic one. Some cases are just actually addressing a problem and or, and or a political scandal, such as we are not actually reaching our climate targets or somebody is saying what, is, what they're not doing, you know? So not everything is strategic. And we now have this big pool of cases where we're trying to filter out categories and we're giving them all a strategic label which not every one of them is. And right. I, would like, I would like for people to actually acknowledge that as climate change goes on, we will see so many cases in court that have nothing to do with us, with me or Michael or Joanna or whatever we think is not going to be very important anymore. That's and that's something that I would like the community to know and therefore support the right cases now so that we don't get bad cases and bad case law. And I have a question to Michael. Can I ask a oh, question? No, because you no, didn't see not, my hand. You're not allowed. These people need to drink. That, <laughs> that was a, a much better answer to a question that you invented. 
<laughs> Terrific. I'm now going to walk over there to say goodbye to everybody. So I hope this machine thing can do it. The reason I'm doing this, the reason I'm doing this is I want to detach myself from the excellence of the intellectual labor we've had today. We've had uh, this Grantham Research Institute, a fantastic organization. I was in LC when I was started. And Joanna and Kate bear the brunt of this work. It's been fantastic. I think they should get a separate round of applause. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, okay. Don't, 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 don't exaggerate. Uh, Grantham has a lot more people that makes this possible. Emily's here, and there are many other people who, who, who run Grantham without whom this would not emerge in the way that it has. The participants, what a thing when you combine Zoom with in-person. To have people from all around the world and people here as well. What a fantastic thing. And what an excellent technology, our technology people as well. I mean, it's so much better it was a couple of years ago. Emily, well done for such excellent questions. Uh, thanks to all the participants. Don't forget your questionnaire. It can still be filled in. And for those of you leaving on Zoom, uh, thank you very much for joining us and for playing your part. For those of you who are here, I'll remind you, in theory, there are drinks and vegetarian canopies outside. You do not have to ask them, is it me? Is it me? Is it me? None of it is me. Final round of applause for yourselves. Thank you for listening. You can subscribe to the LSE Events Podcast on your favourite podcast app and help other listeners discover us by leaving a review. Visit lse.ac.uk forward slash events to find out what's on next. We hope you join us at another LSE event soon.